Okay, today's reading is from the first Corinthians, chapter 15, verse 12 through 20. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection from, of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have per perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is the word of the Lord. Last Sunday, glorious Easter Sunday, I actually started a whole new series, and um, it we entitled it Real Hope, and it was appropriately about Easter. Last week, I gave a case. I made a case for those of you who, who missed it. I made a case for the historical evidence, historical evidence on the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you missed that, we would encourage you to go ahead and, and check that out on our website or on YouTube where, where, we, um, where we put our content. Um, today's part two of a series on resurrection, which we're entitling Real Hope. And um, we're going to work our way through this very, very important passage of Scripture called 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And um, we're gonna, today we're, we're going to do this in three parts. So... You know, the, the resurrection, some of you think, well, isn't it just about Jesus coming back to, you know, life from the dead? Oh, it's more than that. <laughs> the implications are vast, and it will really change the way you live your life today if you really understand them. And that's why we're going to go through this. And um, so today, a message called the ground of true hope, the ground of true hope, because that's part of uh, one of the things that's going on in our culture is that... Um, the Christian understanding of hope is actually very different than what our society talks about as hope. And um, the Christian understanding of hope is based on a really objective fact. Not wishful thinking, an objective fact. Something that happened in history, and that is that Jesus Christ conquered death and came back to not just any life, but an eternal life. So today in three parts, part one, Platonism versus the true Christian hope. Platonism versus the true Christian hope. Now, as you're like, Platonism? Are you talking about Plato, the, the philosopher? Yeah, I am. I'm talking about Plato, the philosopher, and he, he's relevant, and I'll get into that in, in, in a moment. Platonism versus the true Christian hope. Part two, the tr first fruits of the resurrection of the body. That's the way the Bible puts it, first fruits. The first fruits of the resurrection of the body. And part three, the ground or basis of hope-filled living. If you understand what the, the scripture is teaching, 
It should give you a power to live a whole different kind of life. And, and we tend to, I, I, I kind of changed it. We, you, we, talk, we talk about being hopeful, being a hopeful person. Um, I, I want to call you a hope-filled person, right? Um, to emphasize that, hopeful just seems like kind of a dead word. Um, but what is the ground and the basis of hope-filled living? It's the resurrection. Now let's get into this. Part one, Platonism versus the true Christian hope. Um, you know, first, this, this idea of hope. Uh, I said this last week, but I want to I emphasize again today. You know, today, if you live out here in Silicon Valley, you, you're living a pretty good life. Um, this is one of the nicest places, quite frankly, in the whole world to live. The Bay Area is very, very physically beautiful. Um, the economy not, may not be doing so well in other parts of the country, but it's doing pretty good here. And um, this, you know, it's, you get to enjoy something like perfect weather year-round. Isn't that pretty nice? It's a very physically beautiful place. But even then, nonetheless, uh, life even though you're in maybe one of the nicest places in the world to live, your life is still filled with hurt and disappointment. And even inside of you, there's, there's things inside of you, you. You wish you could be a certain way, and you've tried. It's like, I wish I could just stick to that diet, but you can't. <laughs> and I wish I wouldn't be so angry at my dad, but you, you can't. And, and, then, and, those, and then there's just certain relationships in your life that's, uh, that are just breaking down or have broken down. And those are, that's, that's in this, you know, we, 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 keep, you know we, we people tell you, well, have hope. <laughs> have hope. And ours is a society that we love using that word and ha- be a person of hope. But if you really think about what all the, what everybody, what, what they really mean by that is, it's bad right now, <laughs> but sometime in the future it'll be better. <laughs> How do they know? When, you're, when your friends or somebody say, there's, have hope, why have hope? You can't just tell a person, to have hope in the future because it'll somehow get better, you, there has to be a why. There has to be some foundation or ground of, of reason to believe that it's, somehow it's going to be more beautiful and better in the future. So it, it's really odd. Our culture is really big on hope because, it, because we know that if you don't have hope, you're basically dying. I mean, you, 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 some of you know people who pretty much have lost hope in their life. I mean, they, they're depressed or they're angry. Um, maybe um, the person that's uh, the most obvious is if you go around our city and you see a person sleeping on the streets, and he, he's a guy that's just given up on trying to have a job and trying to make a life. Really, that person may be alive, but he's really not alive, right? Because the hope has just been drained out of this person's life. And so, you know, everybody knows that you have to have hope, and so they tell you, have hope because you, you know, your life is going to be good, but, but how do you know that? And one of the things that I think is so strange about our society, our society is increasingly secular, which means it's all about this world, and we have no idea if there's any God, or you know, we're going to be very agnostic about all this stuff. But they accuse us Christians of being a people who base their lives on fantasy. <laughs> you guys believe there's this heaven, and there's a God who loves you, and it's all just made up, isn't it? Or it's just, it's really nice. I wish I could believe that stuff. But it's, it's a kind of fantasy that, that works for you. And that's a, that, that's a very polite way of saying you guys are deluded. But I live in the real world. But the real world kicks you in the head and the heart. And, and, and then they just say, have hope. And then I want to say to all our secular neighbors, why? <laughs> and if you ask me, we have a hope that's based on something real. And that's what, that's what this series is about. The hope is something based on something real. And 
And it's not just that Christianity says that God loves you. It's more than that. That at the center of the promise of the gospel is this thing that we call eternal life. And eternal life is not just going to heaven. Eternal life is resurrection. And resurrection is not something that happens only after you. It's, like late, it's, 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 it's something kind of this thing later. Resurrection has happened and broken into history. It's a very real thing. And that's why Easter is so important. And every Sunday is Easter Sunday. Every life should be a celebration and a hanging on to resurrection. Now, let me, let me back up here. I, I, I said that I'm going to d- describe to you this, this uh, thing called Platonism. And um, you guys might have heard of this uh, very famous philosopher, a guy named Plato. And I don't know if you realize this, but pretty much almost everybody in the West has not has been touched by Plato. You and me, everybody. Um, Plato is one of the top, top philosophers in all of history, and certainly in the West. I, I tend to think of him as sort of like the West, you know, the Europe and America's uh, version of, of, of Confucius, okay? I mean, uh, Confucius is an extremely wise person from the East, and um, he has a lot of real wisdom, and a lot of what he teaches actually agrees with the Bible, but he doesn't know Jesus. Plato's like that, too. And, um, but there are aspects of Plato's teaching that are really good and wise, but then there are some parts that are just wrong, and they disagree with this portion, particularly with this portion of Scripture. And a lot of you, you may believe in a kind of Christianized version of Platonism, and you don't realize it, that what you believe is not even biblical. And here's what I mean. Plato taught that everybody has an, has an immortal soul, that who you really are is this soul. And then you live in the shell called the body. The soul is immortal and lives forever. But the body is, is this physical, material thing, and of course we know that it decays and it dies. And so Plato said that the body is actually evil. The body, and what he means by evil is he doesn't mean that it's morally bad. What he means is by evil, the, the body is actually just worth less. It's not worth much. That, that what really matters is the things that last forever and ever. And so your soul, since it's immortal, lasts forever. That's valuable. But your body is not that valuable. It's, not, it's, it's actually evil. It doesn't, it's not worth much. Now, he didn't have a vision of hell. He says that your soul would go on, and hopefully it would connect to that, which is the true and the good and the beautiful. And there, he's right. Because things that are eternal and last forever, obviously, are worth more than the things that, that pass away. And then there's this part of the, of the, of the, uh, of the wisdom. And, and so many, many people in the West have taken that piece of I mean, where, you know, secularism is actually kind of killing this because secularism is so cynical, we're not sure if anything is eternal um, in, in America today. But this is so many people, a lot of people who began to accept this, they started to see that this is kind of compatible to Christianity. But a lot of people today think that this is the way it is, that you have an eternal soul, and what does Christianity teach? That if you believe in Jesus, that you'll be forgiven of your sins, and then this, you can get to go to heaven. Your soul goes to heaven, but your body dies. Is this what you think? Well, if this is what you think, you're wrong. That's not what the Bible teaches. <laughs> it is not what the Bible teaches. It is not what this passage teaches. If that is what you think, then you're really something more like a Christianized version of a Platonist, <laughs> and you're not really hanging on to the true hope that Christianity, that the Bible actually offers you. Now, 
Um, <clears throat> what does the Bible offer you as your ultimate eternal hope? It's the resurrection. And the resurrection includes your body. In fact, of course, it's your body. Now, let, let, me, um, let me see if I can give you some biblical corrective. And this is very important to establish right here at the beginning of this uh, series. A friend of mine, a, a pastor, a colleague of mine, says when Jesus died and came back to life, um, that's what most people think. He died and came back to life. And that was really great. It is great if a person is dead and come back to life. But do you, do you know that that has happened before? <laughs> And it still happens today. There are times occasionally somebody dies, and you know you guys see them. You know you see the flat line, and and they're like that person literally died for thirty seconds, or sometimes a couple minutes, and then they came back to life. And sometimes you have actually even more miraculous, where they the the person was dead for longer than that. But here's a difference. So what my pastor friends is there's a difference between resuscitation and resurrection. (laughs) Resuscitation and resurrection. Jesus took a guy named Lazarus, and he'd been dead for several days, and he came back to life, but he didn't get resurrection. You know what he got? He got something more like resuscitation. You know what the difference is? He got a life that's like our life now. He got a body back, which is like our body. In other words, it could still die. But what is resurrection? When Jesus came back, he had a whole different kind of body, mind, everything. It could never die again. It was It was an eternal body. It was an eternal person. And this is the way the Bible looks at life. All throughout the Bible, the Bible will never separate out like the soul from the the material thing called the body. The body is a a lesser thing. That's just a platonic way of looking at things, but the, the Bible will never look at it this way. The Bible says that if you can really have life, you have all of it. You have the body and the mind and the heart and the soul, and it's all pulsating with life. That's life. That's the biblical vision of life. It doesn't separate these things out. And obviously there's a distinction, but we tend to do this like the material is somehow lesser than the the internal soul. And this habit is so powerful in our culture that it's affecting the Christians. And when you have this, some of you are wondering, like, why is this so important? Because if you don't understand the way that the Bible understands life, life is as a whole thing with all the material and the spiritual together. So just, just a, let me, let's put it this way. When the Bible talks about spiritual, it doesn't mean like a ghost inside of a machine. Do you know that when the Bible talks about the spiritual, uh, living a spiritual life, it includes the material? And just, just, just give you an example. Like if you take out money and it's, well, I mean, money is not actually even a really physical thing anymore. Money is actually conceptual. But let's say you can actually hold this piece of paper called money. And people go, well, that's real because you can touch it. It's tangible. You can feel it, right? But the Bible says that money is actually a good thing. The body is good. Creation is good. The thing that's bad is what we do with it, how we think about it. That's, and then so how you handle money, that's a spiritual matter. It's not a, like, it's like, this is a physical thing. It's a, it's a this worldly thing, money. And the spiritual is, is just the religion-y stuff. It's the stuff that's like of the soul, the ghost and the machine, right? No, that's never the way the Bible under, understands it. All of life includes the physical and the material. That's why there's a spiritual way to handle money. And then there is, of course, just, there's a, there, there's a sinful and evil way to handle money. Um, take, take something like your body. Uh, our, our culture finds it very offensive that the Bible tells us how to use our body in terms of, of, of say, sex. But our culture is, has a kind of platonic 
has a Plato way of looking at the body because Plato, back in the ancient world, people who were Platonists would say, well, the soul is, is the only part that really matters. So you know what you could do with your body? You could just have sex with whoever you want because that doesn't really matter. So you know, do you notice how that's come back today? It's, you know, our culture is very odd about this. There's a, there's, a, there's a kind of powerful hypocrisy among secular folks when it comes to the body. Um, when it comes to the body, so for instance, on sex, total free-for-all. <laughs> Nobody can judge you or tell you what you could do with your body sexually. I mean, that's, isn't that, when I was in college, the idea that you could have this thing called the hookup, utterly just meaningful sexual pleasure with someone you don't care about whatsoever because you need a study break. <laughs> I mean, I don't know of a person in my college and the vast majority of people in my college didn't believe in Jesus. Who wouldn't have thought that was utterly disgusting? But Platonists thought that's, that's fine. And today, so like hookups are, that, that's, that's, a, that's an example. That's an example of this thing that the body, well, you know, the body is just your body, but your real self is the soul, right? But, but do you notice that, that, that in, in our culture today, too, that when it comes to, say, food, how you eat food, do you notice our culture is incredibly moralistic and controlled? Controlling about your food and your diet. You notice that? Oh, there's all these uh, documentaries out there. If you go to McDonald's, you're a bad person. Because McDonald's is, I mean, McDonald's is an evil company, and that's bad people's food. If you don't eat perfectly organic food, somehow you're a bad person. So on this end of like how you eat, super duper moralistic and judgmental. On this end, on what you do with, with sex, Total crazy free-for-all. There could be utterly no judgment except that if you judge it at all, then, then, you're, ju- then you're supposed to be judged, right? So do you notice how, how incredibly imbalanced it is? Because our culture doesn't really know how to see life. And that includes, so if you do look at the, your, your soul as the main thing and the body, it has all kinds of deep problems inside that cause, that, that's causing a lot of misery. So that's just an example of why this is so important. Um, let me offer to you a couple other things about it. Some of you are thinking, like, what? Isn't that the difference? Eternal life is up there. Whether we have a body or not, does that matter? Oh, it matters. Um, let me offer you a couple other examples. Um, there are some um, people who don't believe in Jesus. They accuse Christians of essentially, if you believe that your soul just goes to heaven, that that's all you care about, and that Christians believe in a kind of escapism, and you don't really care about this world and the neighbors. And I have to say, I think among certain camps of Christians, that is not an unfair piece of criticism. There are lots of Christians who, they don't care about their neighbor's poverty. (laughs) They don't care about disease as long as they're healthy, and then one day, maybe they'll get to go to the good place. Their soul will get to go to the good place because, well, you know, bodies, that doesn't really matter. You know, economics, that's all part of, like, the structural, like, physicality, material problems of the world. Uh, those things don't matter, do they? And then there are other issues, too, like, um, well, the, the body, that's a part of the stuff of the world. And anything that we enjoy of the body, that not that just of the world and all that stuff is going to pass away? And so... They, they tend to get very moralistic. So just as secular people get highly moralistic about like, what you eat, there are some Christians, they put the law and moralism in the wrong place. So for instance, um, I, I went to this fundamentalist Baptist school for two years, and I, I had to get, work that, some of the wrong doctrine out of my system throughout my high school years. But when I was in junior high, you know one of the things they forbid 
I literally had to sign my name to promise that I would not dance. <laughs> you will not listen to rock and roll music, <laughs> and you will not dance. And I was like, and I remember reading that thing, I'm like, what the heck is this? No dancing? <laughs> no dance. There's places in the Bible where dancing is allowed and it's good. I mean, King David dances naked before God, and all the people who oppose him are, are cursed by God. I was like, well, what is that? That makes no sense to me because there are certain Christians that they want to say, if you just only listen to Christian music <laughs> and watch Christian movies and don't dance and don't listen to the devil's music, and then we'll just, you know, live in this little Christian little bubble over here, and then one day we'll get to go, we'll get to go to heaven. And really what they're doing is that's a kind of escapism. It's like they think they can put the walls up, but the creation was made good. It's a false, it's a whole false understanding of creation. It's a false understanding of life, actually. And actually, what salvation is intended to do is not just take your soul to heaven and escape the system, because this is like the matrix and it's a bad system, right? If that's the case, then no wonder that non-Christians think that we just believe in a fantasy, because nothing about what we talk about seems real. Everything that is our hope is about something that seems unreal. But actually, the Bible is all about taking the real. Salvation, there's another word for salvation, that's redemption. A redemption is that all that God has made good will be won back, redeemed back to his will and to be good and beautiful again. And that certainly includes our body. That includes the economy. That includes your friend who maybe um, is mentally ill or your cousin who's deep in depression and maybe they have some kind of like physiological disorders that put them into mental illness or depression. See, all those things are part of what that matters when God came to save us through redemption. Um, let me just give you one more example of why, if you don't know that the real hope is based on the resurrection, and that certainly includes the body, that the spiritual life includes the body, that includes the material, that, that it's, a, it's, it's deeply problematic. And this is a, uh, I can only touch on this, but this is actually in some ways the most important issue. You actually just have a flat out wrong view of the gospel. <laughs> That the promise of the gospel is that if you put your faith in Christ, that you are united to Jesus Christ in the fullness of his humanity. That you are united, you and I who believe in Jesus are united to him in his death and his resurrection. You know what the most amazing thing that we get from Jesus is? It's his life. It's his human, the fullness of his human life, and that's the resurrection. And so, in some sense, you're, you're only getting like a piece. I got forgiveness from Jesus. Great, okay? I got love from Jesus. Great. But if you only have forgiveness and love for this life only, then as Paul says, you are most to be pitied. <laughs> of all people, we're the most pathetic people there are. The Buddhists are better off than we are. That's what Paul would say. Unless you understand that your deepest hope is resurrection. This is life. This, with our bodies, everything. Okay, that's part one. Let's um, get into the Bible here. Part two, the first fruits of the resurrection bo um, body. I, I said in last, I, I don't usually like going to um, a church and then like, you know, it takes 15 minutes for the pastor to get into the Bible. And so I, I, let's stop doing that. Um, let's look at this verse. Let's go to verse uh, 13. Listen to the way Paul makes the argument. Um, Actually, this very moment, uh, this morning when I was driving to church, I was listening to this passage because I'm getting this, trying to get this passage into my mind. And my son was listening to it too. And he asked me, he was like, I don't understand this. 
dad. And, as, uh, and you know, it didn't surprise me at all. He doesn't understand it um, because he probably has Christian Platonic habits. Right? Listen to the argument in verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Isn't that weird? Isn't it first, someone was raised from the dead, then that's how we know there's a resurrection. <laughs> but actually, that's not how he puts it. He puts the argument the other way. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. He goes on and says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. <laughs> you get that? If there isn't a resurrection, the resurrection. So, when Paul uses the word resurrection, most of us tend to think of the one singular instance. There was this guy named Jesus. <laughs> he came back to life from the dead. That's what we call resurrection, and that's what Easter is all about. But when Paul uses the word resurrection, he's talking about an event. That all those people who are redeemed in God, at the end of history, they're all going to raise up. <laughs> they're all going to raise up, and it's called the resurrection. That's what he means by resurrection. And so he's not really even just talking about the one instance that has happened in history from Jesus. He's talking about something that's going to happen at the ultimate, at the ultimate um, culmination of all of history, the resurrection. And, this is, and, then he, and he doesn't make the argument from when it happened in Easter to now. He, he says, if there's no such thing as a resurrection, then even Jesus thinks isn't true. That's what he says. Hmm. That's the way he makes the argument. But then he, he goes on. He goes on, let's, uh, let's drop down, um, let's keep going. Verse 15, we are found, even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he, te that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. Did you hear that? Christ was not raised if it is not true that the general, the dead are not raised. You get that? He, he swings the argument around again. He says it twice. For verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. So have you heard it now three times? You're getting the point? <laughs> He's driving this point really hard. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sin. So he basically just said the same thing again and again and again. What's important? The resurrection is the real hope. And how do we know it's not fake? Because it happened in real life. I'll go back to last week's message. The thing that happened in real life history, that's the thing that's going to happen for you and for me. Now, some of you are maybe thinking, well, does that mean we're not going to go to heaven, <laughs> Pastor? Um, no, you're going to go to get to heaven, but that's not your ultimate hope. I don't, we don't know when Jesus is going to return and heal all of creation, and then the dead will be raised. That's what's going to happen. Jesus is going to return, all of creation will be healed and made new, and then... All those who have died in Christ will be raised with new resurrection. But that's what that's the Christian claim. But until then, so you know, like my grandmother passed away like you know a couple decades ago. Is she in heaven with Jesus? Yeah, she is. <laughs> is Abraham in heaven with Jesus? Is is uh, is, the, is David, Peter, Paul, all these all the saints? Are they in heaven with Jesus? Yes. But here's the important part: that's not their real hope. You know what they're waiting for? The, the theologians actually have a word for this time. They actually call this the intermediate state. 
A lot of Christians think their hope is what the theologians call the intermediate state. But that doesn't sound too exciting, is it? Because who the heck wants, I want to go to the intermediate state. (laughs) I can't wait to get to the intermediate state. And you know why it's boring to think you're just going to go to heaven? Because it is. (laughs) That's not what the Bible considers exciting. I'm going to go to this place, and we're not sure if there's any kind of physicality there. (laughs) You know, we're just kind of like floating in the sky like ghosts with the angels and Jesus. And and that's not very exciting, is it? It isn't. (laughs) And the Bible calls that, the, or at least the theologians call that, the intermediate state because we're waiting. All our brothers and sisters, all our spiritual forefathers, they're waiting. They're waiting for the ultimate thing, and that is the resurrection. So jump down to verse 20. For as by a man came, oh no, verse 20. If in fact, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. In fact, not just in belief, not just as a hope that's like a wishful thinking, which is the way our culture looks at it, but in a very fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And what is it? Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits. You guys understand what that means? It's, it's, a, it's an agricultural metaphor. The first fruits are the first ones that get reaped. And in, we're not just interested in the first fruits. We're interested in the whole harvest. Or let's, let, let's use a little bit more of, of, a, of a modern metaphor. You know what Jesus' resurrection was? It's sneak preview. What happened? We saw a life, a real human life. And he got the final pulsating absolutely overflowing, eternal, eternal, and could not die again life. And it happened here. Not some bygone time. It wasn't some Greek mythology. It happened. And that is going to happen for you and for me. It's a first fruit. And this is, this is their, our ground of hope. And if you can hold this, it'll change everything about the way you look at not just eternity, but now. Now let me close this message. Um, the ground and basis of hope-filled living. If you understand what salvation is for, a lot of people think, I'm going to get to go to heaven. Which, like I told you, that's sort of like saying, I get to go to the waiting room. It's like getting excited about going to the waiting room with Jesus. I mean, it's cool to be with Jesus, and I want to be with Jesus. But I want to be with Jesus when I can embrace him and his body. Do you know he has a body now? I mean, it won't be fun when you get to go be with Jesus, and you don't have your body to get to embrace him. It changes everything. And um, it'll change the way you look at life itself. It'll change the way you look at creation. It'll change the way it look at what it means to be human. Because God made, Christianity is the most positive material, like pro-material religion. You know that? It's like, you know, we get to eat food, and that's good. And then, you know, the way the Bible describes a new heaven, it's like a feast. I don't think that's a metaphor, by the way. That there will be a feast, a wedding feast of the Lamb, and we're going to eat the most absolutely incredible food. Yes, because we're going to have a body. And I can't, you know, like my, my daughter, Laura, goes, you know what I look forward to? She goes, the food. <laughs> so she says, I look forward to the food. And when she said that to me, I, I was so delighted 
because I was like, you're not a Platonist. <laughs> you're an actually a biblical Christian. Somewhere along the line, you know what the real hope is. And you know, do you see what that means? Something that we enjoy today will not be lost, but will be even better then. That's life. Something that we have today, isn't that exciting? Everything like the music that you have today will be even better then. You won't lose it, but it'll be better. And you'll have a body that isn't cursed with anger and depression or just fall, or cancer or death. And every person that you'll be able to embrace and touch, touch, touch will not be gone in the new in the resurrection. In fact, touch would be better than ever because nobody will ever touch you in a way that's unholy or corrupt or evil, but only purely good. Isn't that incredible? Let me close my um, message with this example. I have a, a number of you who've listened to me for a year. You might have heard this story, but I want, I want to tell you. It's one of the most compelling examples I, I, I know, and it's very personal to me. I have a dear friend, and his name is Nicholas Black. Um, he's an elder. He's, a bit, he's, he's, an, he's an older brother. He's Caucasian, older guy. His hair's gone, gone all white now, so he looks <laughs> like, kind of joking. You've gone holy, man. Your hair gone all white. And, um, and um, Nicholas Black and his wife Nancy, they have something very, very hard in their life. Um, Nicholas, this is the kind of thing that you don't know until a kind of thing happens to you. He apparently has a certain gene in his chromosome. And um, you can have the gene, and it doesn't really affect you at all. But if you marry somebody else who also has that gene, there is a chance that a very rare a genetic disorder can, can occur in, in one of your children. And so Nicholas and Nancy have two children. Um, you know, they, they have a daughter who's fully grown. She's married, and she, you know, she's healthy, and she has a great life. They have, uh, they have grand, so Nicholas is a grandfather. They have, they have babies. But they have a son who has this genetic, I forget the name of the disorder. They have a son. He was born utterly paralyzed. Um, his, his, his name is Jeremy, and Jeremy has never spoken. Jeremy's never walked. Um, Jeremy sits in a wheelchair, and he has life support on him all the time. And you could tell, I've been around and hung out with Nicholas and, and his son Jeremy, and you can tell because his eyes, you can just tell just by his eyes. You know, when, when Jeremy's in a good mood, his eyes are bright. But when Jeremy is down, his eyes droop down. And you can tell he's sad. And he's sad often. You, wouldn't you be if you were basically a prisoner in your own body? And yet, they have labored ever since he was born to love him. It takes 24-hour care. Um, Jeremy's actually gone to school. <laughs> has graduated from high school, and when he was born, the doctors predicted that he wouldn't make it probably past, you know, two or three years old, but he's 20 now. And for 20 years, they have loved their son, even though he can never talk. He can can never talk, and he'll never walk. And why? Because, Because there is this hope. It's a very real hope. And it's not a fantasy or an idea that one day Jeremy will have an absolutely glorious and perfect body, not broken, with the most terrible genetic disorder. The most terrible. It's 
I can't imagine a worse one. And that one day he'll say to his dad, Dad, I remember watching that baseball game. Because his, his dad, Nicholas, I mean, that's why our, our friendship, <laughs> part of our friendship was built on baseball, right? I mean, we love Jesus and we love baseball. I mean, what more do you need for a friendship than that, okay? And, um, and uh, he said, Dad, I remember sitting in our kitchen watching games with you. And thank you. And can you imagine one day when Jeremy will say that to Nicholas and Nancy in his glorious body? What an incredible day that will be. But do you understand the gospel? In a very real way, you know, Nicholas and Nancy, they understand their hope is resurrection. And they understand that the body of their son is not it's not, a, it's not some kind of irrelevant matter. <laughs> that real love is washing their son. Real love is touching their son. Kissing him on the forehead and laughing with him, even though he can't laugh back. And you understand that at the heart of the gospel, the father longs to love us this way. That, that actually... The way Nicholas and Nancy loves their son, God, our Father, has loved all of us this way. He's loved all of us this way. I mean, Nicholas and Nancy probably give like a million dollars worth of love to their son, and and maybe he can give back one or two cents, but that's what it's like for us. Our Father in heaven pours out, you know, an, an infinite love upon us, and we can give him back one or two cents in this broken body. <laughs> this broken body that's filled with lust and, and greed and anger and depression and addiction. And, and it's always, and it's like corrupting our soul and our desires and our hearts and our minds. And our Father looks at us and we're probably, and, and spiritually we're, we're all, we're all Jeremy Blacks. And, G, and the Lord said, sent the greatest physician, his very son, Jesus, just said, go give them a new body. Go live in their very body and redeem it. And so when they realize this is their hope, all the Jeremy Blacks in the world, they'll realize you're precious to our father. You're loved by our father, just like he loves me. You know, you see this, you, you, the next time you look at somebody who's filled with poverty, you think economics doesn't matter? Economics is a spiritual matter. You don't think psychology or counseling <laughs> really matter? It's a spiritual matter. Will those things be redeemed? And will we invest our hearts and our lives? Or are we going to just try to live in this little, this makeshift little heaven that you know, we're just trying to keep all the hurt and then everybody else's brokenness in their bodies and their hurt out until we can escape into our heaven, into the intermediate state? That's what so many Christians are doing. We're just trying to, trying to make our little, you know, our, our little, uh, we're going to make our little gated community. <laughs> it's the gated community. It's to only accept friends that are already healthy. And none of them that are needy or none of them are addicted or none of them are depressed. And they can't come into my life because my life is a little gated community. And then one day I'll escape my gated community and I'll get to go to the intermediate state, <laughs> get to be with Jesus. Is that salvation? Salvation is not escaping this world and going to heaven. 
Salvation was that God in all his pulsating life came down to bring life and break it into this creation itself. Salvation was that life would break into the brokenness of death and dying and decay and to redeem all of it. That's why the resurrection is our ultimate basis of hope. And if you could begin to really let that seed drop into your heart and begin to wrap your mind around it, you'll look at all of life and it'll change everything. It'll change everything about the way you look at life. So that you, you can begin to realize that I'm not going to just live in my gated community now and then just try to go to heaven. And then we get all angry when our, our little gated community, like suffering, breaks into our gated community. Oh my gosh, the, the homeless guy came into our gated community. We need to kick him out of here. Instead of doing that, we start thinking, actually, heaven begins here now. And I can live in my resurrection now because everything you do in your body will matter into the resurrection forever and ever. Just like Jesus has lived and he did what he did for us, impacted and loved so many other people, if you can begin to live in your resurrection now, it'll change everything. And it'll make your life heavenly and the people around you heavenly. And everybody around us, they, they want it and they need it so much. And so I hope that you will take this hope deep into your heart. And it'll change you and your marriage, your family. It'll change the way you handle your money. It'll change the way you think about time. Change everything. And we'll bless, and we'll glorify God and bless our neighbors. Let's pray. Father, in varying degrees, we're all Jeremy Blacks. And I thank you for this incredible couple, Nicholas and Nancy Black. They wake up every morning to do very, seemingly very difficult and thankless work, but they could do it because they have the most unbelievable, absolutely unshakable objective, real hope, the hope of the resurrection the resurrection of their son, their resurrection. And this can never be taken from us, Father. But I pray that you would, your spirit would come into us so much that this gift that is more precious, this gift of real hope, would be so powerful in us that we begin to realize the scarcity and the selfishness and all these ways that we're trying to turn this broken life into our own little heaven on the base of our own little wisdom apart from the resurrection that we would throw that away. <laughs> and we'll begin to realize nothing we do in you and for you in our hope of resurrection could ever be lost or wasted. And we would begin to become one, take one step closer to something like Nicholas and Nancy and live in the hope of a resurrection. And you do amazing things with it, Lord. Bless us now as we worship you and respond to worship with you. And we, I pray that you would take the seed and put it into the hearts of our brothers and sisters. And nothing could stop it. Nothing could steal it away. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.